I wanted to talk about a concept that is important for the local church, as important as any of the others that we have talked about, but we need to talk this morning about holiness in the church. And we're going to do that through Acts chapter 5 and the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And so if you're there this morning, you can hold your Bibles open. We're going to look through this verse by verse, and we're going to have a, a conversation and a chat about what some of these things that we learn in the story of Ananias and Sapphira can mean for us today in the local church. And so Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So this first verse sets the stage for us. We're introduced to two people, Ananias and Sapphira, and we are introduced to something that they have done, both with full knowledge. They owned a piece of land. They decided they were going to sell a piece of land. It sounds pretty benign at this point, doesn't it? But it says they, they also sold a piece of property. You see, if you read a couple verses earlier here in the book of Acts, you'll see that what was happening in the local church at this particular time was that people were so moved by the burdens and the needs that others had that they were selling property that they owned and they were bringing the money and they were laying it before the feet of the apostles and the apostles and the overseers in the local church would distribute those funds to those who were in need so that in the book of Acts it says there was, there was scarcely any one in the local church at that time that was in need. And so Ananias and Sapphira, in that same, in that same spirit, they also sold a piece of property and they brought the funds, we're going to get to that, and gave them to the apostles. Now, of course, we have here at Evangel Assembly a benevolence fund, a, a needy fund, and you'll notice in your bulletins for this year, you're going to start to see a balance there as well as we receive donations, as we receive things from the congregation to disperse to those who have needs. You're going to see a balance there, and we're going to endeavor this year to disperse what we bring in for this particular purpose. Last year, we responded to many needs, and you'll see at the annual business meeting, we'll give you a rundown on those things and we would like to continue being able to respond to the needs in our community and in our congregation as they arise. And so this is very similar to what is happening there. Verse 2. The plot thickens a little here in verse 2. With his wife's full knowledge, and so Ananias did something and Sapphira knew about it, they kept back part of the money for themselves but brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, you may be wondering this morning what was going on here. They kept back a portion of the money for themselves, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. You see, as I mentioned, you read earlier before chapter 5 here, and a number of people were selling possessions Barnabas in particular, it says, and he brought all that he had and he laid it before the apostles' feet. It's possible that radical generosity like that in the local church in this day was noticed and, and you gained a reputation as being generous and you gained a, a, an esteem for having been stewarding your, your stuff like that. And the implication here 
And we're going to get to it flat out in just a moment. But the implication here is this, that Ananias and Sapphira saw what other people had done with the property that they owned, and they liked that reputation that these other people got. They liked the pats on the back that they saw other people receiving. And so they were going to endeavor to find that same reputation for themselves, except they were going to do it on the sly and not actually earn it like the other ones did. They were just going to pretend that they were as generous and then they were going to bring the funds in and and earn that same reputation. But in their hearts, they knew that they were portraying something that they had not actually done. And so they do this thing. They sell the land. They collect the funds. They reserve a portion of the funds for themselves. They bring the rest to Peter and then they say this in verse 3. Well, they brought it to Peter. Peter responds to them in verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Verse 4. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. Immediately when Ananias and Sapphira, or Ananias to begin with, brought the money to Peter, Peter discerned and perceived that there was something that was not quite right about this particular situation. The the biblical scholars are in disagreement about what actually took place, whether someone knew about this and they came and whispered into Peter's ear and he knew before they came, but, but equally valid is the fact that the gift of discernment was in play here that we read about in the book of 1 Corinthians, discerning between spirits, discerning between truth, and Peter discerned in that moment that what was being presented before him was not an accurate accounting of what took place. And then he clarified, which is important for us when we read this passage. He clarified in verse 4 this. It's not that Ananias and Sapphira owed all of the proceeds of this land to the apostles or to the church or to God. The funds that they received for selling this land, they belonged to them. The funds belonged to Ananias and Sapphira, just as the land previously had belonged to them, and they were free to steward it as they wished. They could have given all of it like others did, legitimately. They could have given a portion of it. They could have given half of it and retained half for a particular need, had they have declared that. They could have said to Peter, we are going to return a tithe like our Jewish forefathers did in the Old Testament. And you know, they could have just simply returned nothing from the proceeds of this land. And you and I can have a fascinating debate about which one of these options would have been the best stewardship of their funds, but that's for another sermon later on this year. But Peter's clear. The land was theirs, and they could sell it or keep it, And the proceeds of the land were theirs to do what they wanted to. And so we make a mistake sometimes when we look at this passage and interpret this particular passage about giving and stewardship as as, as thinking that God and the church and the apostles are, are money grabbers and that preachers sometimes like to swindle us out of funds. I'm sure that happens from time to time. It just won't happen here at Evangel Assembly. 
I made a comment a couple weeks ago that when Mandy and I are empty nesters, we're going to transfer to the Assemblies of God in the U.S. because I hear the Assemblies of God pastors get to fly on private jets. And then afterwards, when I was talking with some folks in the foyer, they shared with me, this, this one family shared with me that they were actually in the U.S. at an Assemblies of God, I believe it was, gathering. Not that the Assemblies of God is bad. They're our sister organization. But of course, there's individuals that, that sometimes like to stretch things. And this individual is fundraising from the platform. And, and he put it this way. The current private jet he had was a little too small for the growing family and prayer team that they had. And so he was fundraising to purchase a bigger one. To take more people around with him. As he, was, as he was preaching and teaching. It's fascinating because I, I know this is just me, but I, I, think, I think that's why we have things like Air Canada and WestJet. You know, in the U.S., they have Delta Airlines, Southwest Airlines, which is even owned and operated by a, by a, by a Christian owner. Uh, I think that's why we have those operators, because they have bigger jets. And for much less than owning the jet, you can get a seat on them. But anyhow, that's, that's, that's not my story. That's not, that's not my gig. But, but I, I just say that to say this, that this, this story of Ananias and Sapphira is not about money or stewardship, or giving. We'll, we'll talk about that here at Evangel Assembly later on this year. But this story is about something else. This story is about holiness in the church. And so getting back to the story, Peter says to Ananias after he has discerned that what is being presented before him is a lie. And it's not a lie, it's not unholy, it's not distasteful because of the amount. It's distasteful and unholy because of what it is portrayed to be is not in fact what it is. And so Peter says, you've not lied to men, Ananias. You have lied to God. And then we read the reaction. What happens when Peter makes this declaration and everything that was once secret is laid bare and open. Verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. And great fear seized all the people who heard what had happened. Now, some biblical scholars here say that it was Peter's harsh rebuke and uncovering of the truth that caused Ananias to have a heart attack and die, but I think that's reading a little bit too much into the text. The text tells us that Ananias lied not to men, but to God. He lied to the Holy Spirit, it says. And because of this, there was a punishment there was a judgment. You know, biblical scholars also encourage us, rightly so, not to take a, an entirely self-righteous approach in condemning Ananias for what he did. Because in the list of sins that we would find especially bad in the church, not that there is a bad sin and, an, and a less bad sin, but in the list of sins that, that we, we do consider in the church, what was happening here would have been quite low on the list. And I'm sure that many of us would have found that we ourselves fit quite nicely into the category that Ananias found himself in. Yet, Romans 6.23 tells us this. The wages of sin is death. And Ananias died. And people were scared because of this. 
And so for a moment, just think about that. Take a moment to appreciate what was going on in the hearts and the minds of people in the local church, in the early church at this time. Where's the grace, we might ask? Where's the grace in this situation? And I don't know, folks. I don't know. But I know a couple things that I can say for sure. The first is this. Holiness before God is a matter of great importance for the Christian. Holiness before God is a matter of great importance. And what the Old Testament calls the high-handed sin, or Hebrews calls deliberately sinning after the knowledge of the truth, that is a serious thing that the Lord takes seriously. Hebrews 10.26 says, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. It's not that we are lost to an eternity, but if we reject the very thing that brings salvation to us, what other hope is there? If we say to the Holy Spirit who convicts us and who guides us and who directs us, no, thank you, I've got it on this count. What else is there? Where else can we turn? The holiness in the church is a big deal. And I know this too. The local church, we manage the tension of grace and truth. We talked about this last week. In the local church, we need to manage the tension between being so gracious that people can feel like they can come in here at Evangel Assembly and they can belong and be part of us while they're working out their belief. Because folks, I believe that when people walk through the door and when people come and gather with us, it's not because it's something to do because our culture and society is way past that. We are not a culture and a society that just attends church because that's the thing we do. No, today we're post that. We're post a lot of things today. But when people come through the door, I believe that the Spirit of God is doing something, a small, a small something in their heart, a small drawing, a small leaning, and, and our responsibility is to extend grace so that there can be a belonging and an exploring of what that drawing means. But we also have to be churches of truth, we have to present the word of God. We have to be clear about what the word of God says. And we need to call all of us up to a higher standard continually. We need to embrace lifelong transformation. And that's our job as a local church. Grace and truth, which the gospel of John says Jesus gave to us. But here's the thing. We extend grace. We preach truth, but we never render the verdict. We never render the judgment. We never execute the sentence or the punishment. And you notice what happened in the book of Acts. Peter didn't put his hands on Ananias. Peter proclaimed the truth and the Lord handled it the way the Lord saw fit. And it was tragic in that moment. The Apostle Paul also says in Romans 12, 9, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. 
And so we as the local church, even Peter in the early church, it wasn't their verdict to execute judgment. It wasn't their verdict to execute sentence. They express grace and truth in good measure, and the Lord will handle the rest. We look at what happens in verse 6 here. The young men came forward, wrapped up his body, Ananias, and carried him out and buried him. And in verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. Now, I had to pause there when I was studying this week because I find it slightly odd that Ananias died. He was gathered up. He was buried. And three hours went by and no one thought to call Sapphira and tell her what happened. Does that seem slightly odd to any of you? Have any of you ever missed the funeral and the burial of someone really close to you? Like, this is a spouse because no one thought to tell you about it. When I was reading and digging into this, I understand that burial practices in, in this time were a little bit different than us today, certainly because of the lack of embalming and, and pres- preservation. And so it wouldn't be uncommon to have been buried right away like that. But what is slightly uncommon is that Sapphira didn't know what happened. This kind of debunks the notion that the early church was just a small, tightly knit group of people. Indeed, the early church, if we total them all up in the book of Acts, was very literally likely thousands of people who were being saved. And Peter was part of the head and they gathered together in small gatherings at this house and at that house such that the people who saw what had happened to Ananias and were gripped with fear, they probably told other people what had happened, but somehow... The, the grapevine didn't make it all the way to Sapphira. And so three hours later, she walks in to where Peter is. Now, we don't know why she walked in. Ananias had already brought the money. Maybe she was wondering what was taking him so long. And of course, without the advent of cellular technology, she just had to walk and find out for herself. But I also have to wonder, as she walked in the building where Peter was, wherever this was, People there must have known what had happened. You would have thought they'd at least give her a heads up. I mean, those of you who are on the ushering and the greeting team here at Evangel Assembly, isn't that just ushering and greeting 101? If you're at the door and someone comes in and they've just lost someone, you say, I'm sorry for your loss. You express sympathy. So apparently Peter hadn't had that seminar yet with the greeters in the early church. So she walks in. And verses 8 to 10 wraps up this passage, tells us this. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? And now here, what was implied before is now stated outright. This amount that they brought in, whatever it was, they've claimed it was what they got for the land. And Sapphira says, yes. This is the price. That was the turning moment for her. There was an opportunity there for her to do the right thing. There was an opportunity there for her to say, actually, no, this wasn't all of it. We retained a portion. 
But she said, yes, this is the price. Verse 9, Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. There's some things we know about this story. There's some things that this particular passage in the book of Acts teaches us, like maybe not other passages in the word of God, but it's this, the first thing, as I've said before, holiness is serious to God. Holiness, or sometimes called righteousness in the word of God, it is serious to the Lord. The 23rd Psalm says what? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Then he leads me in paths of righteousness. And why? For his name's sake. Here's the first reason why holiness is important to the Lord God. It's because, first of all, for his name's sake. People who profess to say, I am a Christ follower, I have the Spirit living in me, we ought to accurately reflect the presence of God in our lives. That is an important part of that. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake because he is a holy God, he is a righteous God, he is a good God, and those who follow after him ought to portray that goodness and that righteousness and the holiness to the world around them. That's one of the reasons why holiness is important and serious to God. That's an external reason that we find in the word of God. But here's something else we read in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God. We read about doing battle in the spiritual realms. We read about protections that we have. Remember some of those armor? We talk about them in Sunday school sometimes. You have the, 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 the belt of truth. Remember that? You have the, the, the shield of faith. You have the helmet of salvation. You have the breastplate of righteousness. Holiness before God is not just about our witness to the world, but holiness before God is about a protection for you and I when we encounter struggles and difficulties that would otherwise crush us. We put on the righteousness of God and it is a protective measure for us. Because without that that breastplate of righteousness, there's a crack in the armor There's a place where we're weak. We refer to it sometimes as a a toehold or a stronghold or a foothold. There's a place where we're not guarding, where we're not protecting, and the enemy can come and poke and prod and chisel away at that spot, and it can become bigger and bigger and bigger. And if it gets really big, it destroys all of the armor and the person underneath. How many of you have children who have come home from school 
or sorry, who have gone to school with holes in their knees that are this big. They've come home from school with holes in their knees. Well, there's no more knee in the pants. A small hole, a small opening, a small chink in the armor is great for picking and pulling. Now let's get that one thread off. And then it opens up another whole category. And this is what the breastplate of righteousness does for us. It protects us. And so the righteousness of God isn't just there so that you and I, so that Christians have to be humdrum, no fun people. Sometimes we're portrayed that way. The righteousness of God isn't there just so that Christians can be people that live according to a new set of rules. We have the civil law, and now we have the moral law, but that was, that's Old Testament thinking. We, we live in relationship with Jesus Christ, but the freedom that we have, the holiness that is imparted to us, is there for our very protection. And if we fail to properly apply that breastplate of righteousness, we do harm to ourselves. If we fail to properly walk in paths of righteousness, we can do harm to the witness of Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard someone say, if that person goes to church, I would never go. People have said that to me before. It paints the church with one brush. And you know what? It's unfair. It certainly is unfair. It's absolutely unfair. But it's also the reality of where we live. And the word of God told us in Psalm 23, he leads us in righteousness for his sake. And Ephesians 6, we apply the breastplate of righteousness for our sake. Folks, we say we want the Spirit of God to move, and we do, and the Spirit of God has been moving, but C.S. Lewis says this, when the Spirit of God moves, he is good, but he's not always safe. When the Spirit of God moves, he brings power like in the New Testament. His presence comes, but also holiness comes because the Holy Spirit is a spirit of power, of dunamis that we read in Acts chapter 1, verse Eight, the Spirit will bring power for witness, but the Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of truth, we read in the Gospel of John. He's the Spirit of righteousness, and it comes as a package. We can't pick power over holiness or power over righteousness because it doesn't work that way, at least not for long. It's not like Bulk Barn, where we can go take our bag and fill it up with a couple scoops of the power and presence and a dash of of righteousness and holiness of the Spirit. It doesn't work that way. It's like McDonald's or Wendy's. You get what comes with the combo and you don't get to have any substitutions. And so the Spirit of holiness and the Spirit of truth are one in the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we can resist that full package. We can resist that. We can desire to be present and to feel God and to move according to the Spirit. But when it gets uncomfortable and difficult and He challenges us, we can back away. We can push that away. But let me tell you, those who reject the full measure of the Spirit are worse off. The devil, we are told in the book of James, and those who follow him acknowledge God. Of course we believe in God, they say, and they shudder. And so believing in God, believing in his power, believing in his presence, and wanting to get close enough to feel it is not the full deal. We need to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. And so holiness is serious business 
to the Lord God. There's another thing that I think of when I read this passage of Ananias and Sapphira. And this one is on the gracious side. That judgment is not always immediate, and thank God for that. We manage grace and truth in the church. We extend grace and allow people the opportunity to grow and develop according to what the Spirit of God is doing in their heart, and we speak truth that encourages them and draws them up to a higher standard, the standard of God's righteousness, and thank God that when we misstep, when we make a mistake, that the judgment is not always immediate, but just because you and I have not been struck down for having told something that is not true doesn't mean that we can rest safe and secure in our sin because we understand that the holiness of God is serious business. There's times that we pray and we ask for the blessings of the kingdom of God to fall. There's times we lay hands on people and pray for healing, and they're not healed because we understand that, that God's going to come back and healing is going to be universally experienced for all of us someday. But right now, the kingdom of heaven breaks in here and breaks in there, and it's nothing that we have earned or deserved, but it is a, it is a manifestation of the kingdom of God and what is coming, and we rejoice in that. And it's the same way when we read Ananias and Sapphira in judgment. We know the current realities that are coming. We know what, what our scriptures say, that God is to come to pour out when he returns, when Jesus Christ returns, to pour a blessing and to pour out judgment. And Ananias and Sapphira are the practical reality of what that looks like. And so, the sin here, as I said before, of Ananias and Sapphira it wasn't even one that we make a big deal about in the church. It wasn't immorality. It wasn't even thievery. And it wasn't a lack of generosity or a lack of stewardship because, frankly, they were going to give a large portion of the proceeds. It was lying, bearing a false witness, and the wages of sin is death. Wow. Wow. Someone shared a story with me at one time, similar to this, of an individual in the local church, not here, not, not near here, so don't try and figure out who it is. If it was close, I wouldn't tell you. Of an individual who was a constant complainer, naysayer, divider, faction creator, Every church business meeting, you'd hear from this individual and their list of names of people they recruited to their cause. And in the middle of a tirade at a business meeting, the individual collapsed and died from a heart attack right there. It wasn't immorality, it wasn't thievery, nor any of the serious sins of the church. It was division, factions. Great fear seized the local church in the book of Acts after this happened. But the Proverbs tells us that fear, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom, if we can start to understand that. 
Proverbs 9.10 tells us that. Proverbs 19.23 tells us the fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. And in this fear context, we're not talking about fear like spiders or my kids are afraid of dogs. We are talking about a reverence and in awe the way someone might approach a lion who we are told is tame, but we want to make sure we approach with reverence and awe. The song Amazing Grace that we sing so often. Tis grace that taught my heart to fear. Think about the lines we sing sometimes. And grace my fears relieved. If we're honest this morning, many of us here find God's actions in this story of Ananias and Sapphira to be ungracious and to be really offensive. But it actually reveals a little bit of our ignorance in the question. We shouldn't be asking this morning, why did Ananias and Sapphira die? Instead, we should be wondering, God, why am I still standing here? Why have I been permitted to live This death was a picture of how God feels about sin, which leads to the final thing this morning. Repentance. Repentance is necessary. And we're going to take a few moments in just a moment just to allow the Spirit of God to stir things up in our heart that we might need to repent of this morning. That we might need to allow the Holy Spirit to have a greater say, a greater measure in, in our hearts, in our lives this morning. And folks, it's important to know that the early church wasn't a society of perfect people. It wasn't as though everyone in the early church had it all together except for that Ananias and Sapphira, and the Lord took care of that. Absolutely not. The early church was full of people that had faults and sinned. In fact, Peter, the head of the church, Peter, the one who discerned that this was a lie, do you remember what Peter did on the night that Jesus was crucified? Do you know the Lord? I don't. And again, do you know the Lord? I don't. And a third time, do you know the Lord? I don't. I'm sure Peter may have been asking, Lord, why did I get to live? And they didn't. And gave him a fresh, fresh perspective on grace and walking in holiness and reverence to God. And so the early church, it wasn't, it wasn't society of perfect people. It had its faults, it had its sins, it had its blemishes, but it also had this. It had a reverence and a holiness for the Holy Spirit, for the Word of God, and, and they walked in it to the best they could, at least most of them. I preached a message last year about no condemnation, and that is so true. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This morning, if you are here and you have confessed faith in Christ and you have said, I want Jesus Christ to come forgive me of my sins, you've confessed with your mouth and you believe in your heart and you walk in that, there is therefore no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that I can say, there is nothing I should say, there is nothing I should do or the local church anywhere should do to keep condemnation and shame on anyone, anywhere, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We just allow the Lord to handle those situations. But I have to say a word about 
on repentance because that does fall in our court. We can't say that we're working on something and then not work on it. Repentance is acknowledging when we are living out of alignment with God. And it also is more than an acknowledgement. It's a turning. It's a walking in a different way, a new way, as you endeavor to bring it back into alignment with Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. Pastor Aaron is going to come back. And I want to share a story with you before we wrap up this morning. Many of you this morning are probably familiar with what a trapeze is at a circus. When you go to a circus and watch trapeze artists, you see them hanging from tall ropes and bars in the air and swinging and jumping out into the air and doing their acrobatics and then catching on to the hands of another person and continuing to swing on. And we wonder when we look at those things, the timing of it all, the dexterity of it all, the near misses of it all, what would happen if they just missed and fell? And in most cases, when you see trapeze artists at work, there's a net underneath of them. And when they fall the net catches them and they bounce back up to the trapeze again. And so in Christ, it's like we live on a trapeze so that the world looks and says, wow, look at how they love one another. Look at how the husbands treat their wives. Look at how they work in their factories, in their offices. Look at how they are as neighbors in their community. Look at how they function as students. That's what it's like to live on a trapeze, being seen. But what happens when we slip? When we slip, the net is there absolutely every time. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to celebrate the table of communion in a moment as well. But the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ has provided forgiveness for all of our trespasses. Folks, this morning, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that you have in your heart that is beyond the grace of God. There is absolutely nothing that you can say that you have walked through, that you have walked in, that you have done on purpose, that you have been accidentally a part of, that there is not grace for. And not just 50% grace, not just 80% of the way back, 100% grace. There is absolutely nothing that you could say, no, I've fallen too far. I've fallen too deep. You have no idea about my life or about my past or about my history. It's just too far gone. That's not the truth. There is neither height nor depth. There is no power in heaven or on earth that could ever separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. And so that net, it's there. And it's strong, and it's sturdy, and it's stable, and it catches us. But here's the thing. We can't continually lay on the net and never get back up. Because if a trapeze artist just fell and laid on the net, 
we'd probably doubt whether that person was really a trapeze artist to begin with. The good news is this, that we can get back up, not because we're strong, but because the joy of the Lord is our strength, because the empowerment of the Spirit is our strength, because the local church bearing one another's burdens, not pressing down the burdens, but bearing the burdens gives us the hope that we can stand back up. So folks, this morning, there's likely a variety of ways that you and I sin in this room this morning, a variety of things that we need to repent for, and the Holy Spirit is going to draw those to our heart. It's not pleasant. It's not nice. But he does it to help us refix that breastplate of righteousness to avoid future damage. Our culture tells us ah, we're messed up people and that's okay. But it's not okay to remain in it because we don't have to. It's okay because in Christ we have a way out. And folks, our struggles, our issues, they change as we grow. I listened to an elderly pastor preach a week or so ago, and he's in his 80s now, and he said this, you know, the, the things that I struggled with when I was younger, they're not the same things I struggle with when I'm older. And so this morning, depending on your age and stage of life, it could be a completely different thing. He said when you're younger, if you're younger this morning, sexuality and immorality are huge areas of temptation, especially in the culture of, of sexuality that we have today. Holiness and, and unbelief, especially in the, in the antagonism that people have against messages of the local church today. Even, even letters that I've read recently, you'll read them too, I'm sure, from our government. Likening messages of morality to bigots and tyrants imposing their views on others. Those are the things that we struggle with today. Parenting with grace and not anger. Abusing substances to take our minds off things that overwhelm us. Becoming drunk with wine because life is just overwhelming. But we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, with fellowship, with relationships that fulfill those needs. But this pastor said this, he said he's 80 now. A lot of those things are behind him. He doesn't struggle with immorality or sexuality right now. And he gave me some great insights. He said, when we are older, you can tell me later if this hits the hammer on the head, but he said, fear comes into play. When we get older, we become fearful of death. How will I die? How soon will it be? And will it be long? Will it be painful? When people are older, they start to become afraid. Did my life mean anything? Am I insignificant? Will people remember me? What about my mind? Am I going to remember tomorrow? Tomorrow? He said, when you get to the next stage of life, you're fearful that everything you work so hard for is someday going to be in the hands of someone that could be very ungrateful for it. And your fear of being alone. And he said that these fears, these can be such an overwhelming voice in your life that the enemy can use them to make you distrustful of the younger generation, can make you believe the lie that you're no longer valuable, and can make that 
poorly worded comments about older people think that it's representative of the entire younger generation. And he said, and this is him speaking, he said, and then we turn out to be 80 and we turn out to be bitter and we turn out to be cranky because we feel like the whole world is against us and it's the lie of the enemy. It's not. It's not the truth. So maybe you're in that boat this morning. Maybe, maybe you're believing that the end is near. You're not sure if people remember you, care about you, or even want to know you, and you've become bitter, and you've become cranky. He said it. But perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. We don't have to be afraid of tomorrow. I'm, I'm not afraid of what it will be like when I die because I think that's going to be a long ways away. But that's my stage of life. But perfect love casts out all fear. The Spirit of God does not bring us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and of peace and of a sound mind. That's the Word of God for you this morning. And so take a few moments, folks. Let's close our eyes. Holy Spirit, help us to repent this morning of the ways that we have stepped out of your holiness and righteousness. Ways that we know of. Maybe ways that we weren't even aware of, but you've brought to our hearts and you're challenging us now this morning, Lord God. Speak to our hearts, God. Each one of us exactly where we are. And folks, as the Spirit of God speaks to your heart, just begin to repent and renounce the things the Lord draws up. The Lord draws up in your heart, struggles with immorality, just begin to say, and in the name of Jesus, I renounce that on my life. In the name of Jesus Christ, I repent. I ask, Lord, that you would forgive me for missing the mark there, and I, I want to be raised up to a higher threshold of holiness in Christ. Maybe this morning you're of an older generation, and it is that fear. It is that, that anxiety that comes with what's, what's next for me. Or maybe it's a, a cynicism or a bitterness of those who are who are in leadership now, who are doing things now. Because there's a mistrust that has been sown there by voices and lies of the enemy. Just simply say to God this morning, I renounce the bitterness. I renounce the cynicism that has come in. I renounce the lies of the enemy. And I take hold of the fact that though the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus brings life and abundant life. And as long as you have breath this morning, as long as you have life and breath, you are valuable to God and important in the kingdom.